but I would like to uh, ask you this morning, take your Bible and open it to the book of 1 Timothy. Michael, I'm turning the, the lapel mic on if you want to make sure that's up uh, so that hopefully that will work. Uh, and um, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things on the internet that are just a big waste of time and yet are thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, one of my favorite things uh, is, uh, is something called, uh, one of my favorites are, are uh, demotivators. I don't know if you've ever seen these demotivators. Um, I know you've seen those, those uh, kind of sappy motivational posters that you see in offices. Well, demotivators are, uh, are, are posters that are designed along the same theme. They look the same way, uh, but instead they have a cynical and, and uh, I think often hilarious caption. One of my favorites um, is, is uh, a picture of a, a ship that is sinking and half submerged in the water. And the, 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 the title is Mistakes. And the caption says, it could be that the purpose of your life is supposed to inject some levity into what is often a frustrating work environment. But that particular image of the, 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 the ship sinking and the mistakes, uh, that, that, that caption um, really came to my mind this week as I was studying and preparing uh, for uh, this message on 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that what we have here in these three verses is a very serious warning based on the real-life experience of some Christians in the church at Ephesus. Now, I don't want to make light of this, and so bringing up that poster and that, I'm not trying to make fun of this. This is a very serious subject, and it's one that merits uh, some careful attention on our part. The stakes are very high, and because of that, we really can't afford to treat it lightly. In fact, one writer said that when we preach and when we hear God's word, he said it's important that we grasp the weight of what we're doing. And let me quote him. He says, defining theology is not a sport, but more akin to handling high explosives. Careful and deliberate choices must be made which affect life now and forever. So we don't want to make light of it. But sometimes a negative example can have a good, can, can really serve us well. It can be very effective in warning us and in warning others um, against charging ahead foolishly or becoming careless in our spiritual lives. And so I want to take a look at uh, 1 Timothy 1, 18-20, these verses that bring this first chapter and Paul's really Paul's introduction of the letter to a close uh, and uh, see here what the Apostle Paul has to say. Look there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Will you pray with me as we ask God's help in studying and considering his word? Father, again, this morning we come to you because we realize that everything we are doing today in trying to worship you and trying to respond to you, everything uh, that we're doing is beyond our power. We realize that we are completely inadequate to praise you as you deserve. We are completely inadequate 
to, uh, to hear your word and to respond to it properly. I am completely inadequate to proclaim your word. And so we come to you because we know that you are the only one uh, who can accomplish your work in our life, uh, who can um, enable us and equip us to do the work that you called us to do. You are the one that is uh, the essential part here, not us. And so we pray that you, uh, by your spirit, would minister to our hearts today, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would correct us even. And Lord, on top of that, that you would make us willing to receive correction and instruction. And so I pray today that you would have your way in our hearts, that you would accomplish your work, and that you would do a great work here. We pray that you would make us and mold us into the image of Christ a little bit more today as we come face to face with the truth of your word. Help me as I speak to bring honor to you and to highlight uh, and illuminate the text of Scripture and not my own wisdom. And so, Father, we pray that you would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you remember if you will, back in verse 17 of chapter 1. We talked about that last week. Paul had been reflecting on his own salvation, right? How God had graciously saved him in spite of his complete and utter unworthiness. And at the end of that, verse 17, Paul kind of lifted up his voice, if you will, with a, a doxology, a hymn of praise. Well, that's how verse 17 or that section kind of closes. Well, verse 18 starts off talking about this charge. In the opening words are, this charge I commit to you. Well, what charge is he talking about? Because verse 17 doesn't have a charge. Verse 17 is a, is a praise. It's a doxology. Verses 12 through 17 is talking about Paul's salvation and God's grace. There's no charge there. That's, uh, it, it's simply uh, Paul reflecting on what God has done. Even going all the way back to verse 8 and verses 8 through uh, 17, uh, we don't see a charge there. We have to go all the way back to verse 3 in this chapter if we're going to find out what he's talking about when he says this charge. You notice verse 3, he says, I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach another doctrine. That word charge there is not identical to the word in verse 18, um, but it is the verb form of the noun. So there, it's a verb and a noun, but it's, so it's a related term, the word charge. Now, verse 5, um, Paul says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Well, that, the New King James translators, for some reason, translated that word differently uh, than they did in verse 18. It's the same word. Uh, the word that's translated commandment in verse 5 is the word charge in verse 18. So what we understand, if we're kind of if we kind of can put this together, that when Paul says this charge in verse 18, he's referring back to something he's already discussed in verses three through five, okay? the earlier part of the chapter. So well, one, some people have suggested that means that well, the the the, the in verses 12 through 17, or maybe even verses 8 through 17, are kind of a parenthesis. Paul's talking about an unrelated issue, um, and then he comes back to it here. Well, I don't think that's the case. In fact, I think the whole chapter is, is really, Paul is thinking one thing here. He's thinking about Timothy's ministry in Ephesus, and how is Timothy going to do what he has been called to do? Timothy has been given instruction 
And remember, we, we saw this two weeks ago, uh, that Timothy's instruction can carry both a negative and a positive uh, aspect, right? There was the negative side. He was tasked with going to Ephesus and confronting and rebuking some false teachers. Not a fun task. At the same time, he was called to go and proclaim the truth, proclaim the good news of God's glory. Now, uh, this is the command that Paul laid out. In, verse, in the first few verses of the chapter, kind of Paul uh, reiterates or reminds Timothy, hey, this is your mission. So he kind of reiterates the command. Then in the middle part of the chapter, verses 8 through verse 17, um, Paul, really what he's doing there is he's kind of showing Timothy why he needs to do what he's been called to do. What is his mission? His mission is confront the false teachers, proclaim the, the gospel. Why do that? Well, because they've got bad theology. And so Paul is explaining to Timothy that these teachers have bad theology that needs to be corrected. And so that's your job. Go in and, re and reject the false and proclaim the true. And then, uh, of course, he, that's part of why Paul shares his own testimony as a reminder to Timothy of the grace of God and salvation. That's the positive message we are to preach. But then we come to the end of the chapter. And so here, again, I think it's all consistent. What Paul is doing now at the very end of this chapter is he is going to talk to Timothy about the equipment that he has. He's going to remind Timothy, okay, he's already told him what his calling is. Then he's told him why he needs to do it. And now he's going to tell him how it's going to be done. What tools, what resources does Timothy have that are going to, he's going to use to accomplish this mission? And really, there's three points that I want to kind of draw out here from these verses. And, uh, and I'm going to put them in my own way here. But, um, but really, the first thing we see in verse 18 is what I call the warrior's preparation, the warrior's preparation. And uh, Paul here in verse 18 gives Timothy a couple of important reminders, right? He says, this charge I commit to you. In other words, I have, I have entrusted you with a, a commission, with a job, with a responsibility. But how is Timothy to do that? What resources does Timothy have? And that's what he's talking about here. And I, th I think there's two resources that Paul emphasizes in verse 18 that Timothy is to rely on. These are things that as Timothy goes about his mission as it, serving as a pastor, serving as a representative to the church, serving uh, the, the, the people of God by confronting error and preaching the truth. What is the resource that Timothy is going to have to rely on to accomplish this? Well, the first thing that he does is he reminds him of his spiritual heritage. What he says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. There is a spiritual kinship between the Apostle Paul and this young pastor. Of course, we, as we've noted before, it's very likely that Timothy came to faith in Christ under Paul's preaching ministry there in the city of Lystra, probably 20 years before this letter was written. And so as Timothy then was probably just a teenager, Paul uh, preached, Timothy heard the gospel, uh, he had the foundation of the, the, the Old Testament scriptures that his mother and his grandmother had taught him, and, and, and that prepared his heart to hear and receive the gospel. He heard Paul preach, he trusted in Christ. And so there is that spiritual relationship. We, we've already touched on that. Paul probably is the spiritual father directly of Timothy. 
But even more than that, even more than that, we, we, we noted already that Timothy had experienced the very same grace that the Apostle Paul had, had received. That, that, that super abounding grace that Paul talked about in verses 12 through 17. And Paul reminded Timothy that, yes, Paul's testimony, you know, and I know I've, I've, my wife and I have had conversations about this before uh, because both of us were saved as children growing up in Christian homes and Christian churches. And, 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 you know, of course we weren't perfect and I don't say that to, 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 to hold us up at all, but, um, but we, we both, you know, were saved at a fairly young age. And so we kind of, you know, we, we would hear people share their testimony. You know, the, the guy who's a, who's a, in fact, I remember, I don't remember the guy's name, but I remember years ago listening to a guy who was a hell's angel, you know, biker. I mean, he was like a 1%. He was like the, 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 the toughest of the tough, you know, and, and he got saved. And I remember hearing him, uh, a recording of him sharing his testimony. And, and, and people like that, you know, talk about, talk about living a life of, of, of immorality and violence and drugs and all these things. And then they get saved and how God just completely transforms their life. And sometimes I know for, for my wife and I, we both have felt this at times growing up in, in, in church that sometimes when you've been a Christian since you were since you were young, you don't have that same experience. You can't say what Paul says. You can't say, I was a persecutor. I was a violent person. I was a blasphemer before I got saved. Um, and so sometimes we, we say, well, you know, God's grace for me is not nearly as significant as it is for this guy over here who, who, who was a really, really bad guy, and then he got saved. And, and so we have a tendency, I think, maybe to minimize the grace. But, but remember, Paul doesn't do that. Yes, he holds himself up as an example. Yes, Paul's proof that anybody can be saved. Because if Paul can be saved, you can be saved. Doesn't matter what you've done. You could not have done worse than Paul. That's what he's saying. He, you couldn't have done anything that would, that would disqualify you more than he had done, and yet God saved him. But Paul is not minimizing Timothy's salvation, even though Timothy was saved probably in his youth, because Paul is identifying that. And, and, and we talked about that back in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. Paul is saying, Timothy, you and I have a common experience. Okay, Our Lord, Jesus Christ, enabled. Right, He's the one who gives the grace to do this. So that's what Paul is talking about. And I think in, in many ways, that same superabounding grace that Paul experienced, he's reminding Timothy, Timothy, you're my son. You have experienced the same thing. We have a shared kinship in Christ. We have the same experience of grace. <clears throat> and again, if, if the Lord called Paul on the road to Damascus and enabled him, counting him faithful, putting him into ministry, then Timothy, what Paul is saying, Timothy, you two can expect the same kind of divine enabling for the ministry. If God called Paul and put him in the ministry, Timothy, he called you and did the same thing. And that's what Paul is doing here by making this familial connection. Timothy, you're my son. But even more than that, so on, on top of all of that, I think there's another layer here of this relationship because Paul had spent years with Timothy. Remember, Paul, uh, Timothy had traveled with Paul for a number of years. Already, before this point, when he writes this letter, Timothy and Paul had been travelers. They had traveled from place to place. They had experienced persecution and hardship. They had preached the gospel, seen people saved. They had, they had fought together against uh, spiritual wickedness and, 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 and unbelief and false teaching. They had experienced the hardships of travel and all the difficulties. All of that, Timothy had experienced side by side. And Paul had been training him. Paul had been teaching him. Paul had been discipling him, watching him grow. 
right? Paul had, 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 had seen Tim, and you can imagine Paul working alongside Timothy <clears throat> and, and maybe giving Timothy some, some minor responsibility in the ministry, something to see if he would be faithful. And, and then as Timothy did that and demonstrated some faithfulness in some small area, you know, maybe he worked in the sound booth for Paul as Paul was preaching, or maybe he worked in the nursery with the little kids. I don't know, probably not. But, um, but you know, he had some small responsibility. And, and then as time grew, then, then, then he got more because Paul would, would, would give him more, lean on him more, and give him some more opportunities and bigger and bigger things that he was entrusted in. Until now, Paul has sent Timothy to this major metropolitan area of Ephesus. And he has to go in there and he has to straighten out the church, reform the church there because there's problems there. And he's to call them to write. I mean, this is a pretty significant responsibility. And Paul is, 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 is leaning on the fact that he has spent all these years pouring his life into Timothy. And he's reminding Timothy of this. There is a lot of history here. Timothy, we share this fellowship in Christ and I have shared myself with you, son Timothy. So that is something Timothy is going to rely on. He needs to be reminded of. But more than that, notice that Paul goes on here because he presses home another point. He says, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Paul here is reminding Timothy of prophecies that were spoken at his ordination to the ministry. I know he doesn't say that exactly specifically here. That's kind of my interpretation of it. He just says that it happened sometime in the past. He doesn't say who made the prophecies. He doesn't say exactly when or where they were made. Uh, he doesn't say exactly what these prophecies were, and there's a lot of different opinions about that. Um, some people have suggested that these were divine revelations. Right? We think of like the, the prophets in the Old Testament. God gives them a word, and then they proclaim it. And, and of course, there's people today that still claim they have this gift, but... Um, but the scripture, I, I think, would suggest otherwise there pretty strongly. Um, but, uh, but, but you know, some say, well, these were predictions maybe about Timothy that were made, uh, 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 you know, visions or, or, or words of, of prophecy that God had given to, to tell Timothy what was going to happen, how his life was going to turn out or ministry he was going to accomplish, something like that. Um, I'm not really sure that that's the case. In fact, part of the reason for that is if that's true, and Paul just kind of mentions them in passing here, then what good do they do for us? There's not much of an encouragement for us that Paul spoke some unique uh, one-time one words of prophecy about Timothy back 2,000 years ago. And he's reminding Timothy of those things. What, what benefit would be there be for us? So I don't see a significance there for us. I, I, so I question whether that would make sense, that that's what Paul is doing, why he would record that here. Because remember, this is not just for Timothy. It's also for the church at Ephesus. And of course, down through the ages, it's for us. Of course, I suppose maybe if, maybe if we had someone of the Apostle Paul's caliber to make prophecies about us, then we could rely on them, just like uh, Timothy is going to rely on these things. But I don't, I don't think that's very likely. In fact, I think instead what's more likely is these prophecies Paul's referring to are actually words of instruction or words of exhortation based on Scripture. Um, instructions about what ministry looks like in the New Testament church. Instructions about what uh, it looks like to be a pastor 
to be a missionary, to be an apostle of, of the church here, to be sent to preach and teach and train. And, and, and so, again, we have to remember the New Testament had not yet been written in its entirety. Some parts of it were written by this time, but not all of them. And it would probably be a few decades more, if not a century or more, before all the 27 books that make up the New Testament would be collected together and pretty well disseminated so that everyone had them. That take time. And so it would have been appropriate, you think about this, on the day when Timothy was ordained, say, to, be, to become this servant of the church, to go out and serve in the church, you can imagine the appropriateness of Paul and maybe some of the other men uh, who were older, experienced apostles or, or some other men in the church who had experience of, of charging Timothy, of telling Timothy what the ministry is going to look like that he's going to do basing their, their, their words on Scripture, and, and maybe, again, basing them on what we now have as New Testament revelation, which would have been prophetic then in the sense that it came directly from God. So what, And then, of course, when you look at the rest of the letter of 1 Timothy, you see Paul's going to talk about what, ought, what the kind of things should we be doing in church. What should the leaders of the church be like? What qualities should they have? How should they behave? How should discipline be handled? How should different issues with, with respect to uh, widows and taking care of needs and those kind of things, all of these things, well, those things would make up the content potentially of the things that Paul and these others had prophesied earlier in Timothy's life. And this letter is a reminder of those things. And so I think it's very likely that what Paul is doing here is he is reminding Timothy, not of some sort of, you know, uh, you know, future telling prophecy that, that, that laid out what Timothy's life was going to be like, okay, but rather instructions about doing ministry that Timothy had been given, that had, that had already been spoken to him. And Paul is saying, recall those things to mind. Recall these principles. Recall these truths. Remember your calling, Timothy. Remember, Paul had already referenced the calling he received back in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. In verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Paul is, is very willing and ready to go back to his calling and say, I have been called by God to this ministry, and therefore I'm going to execute the ministry. And I think what he's doing here is simply reminding Timothy of a resource. Because sometimes in the heat of the battle, it's good to remember that God has called you, that he has placed you, and that he has equipped you to fight. That, I think, is what Paul is doing here. He's describing this preparation, the warrior's preparation. That's a foundation here. In a lot of ways, verse 18 is setting the foundation, saying, listen, you've been given this call. It's a difficult call. Confronting and rebuking false teachers, preaching the truth and staying firmly and faithful to it. That's a difficult call, Timothy. But you've got the foundation. You have the resources. You have been called by God, and he has equipped you to do these things. Right? You have the tools. And so what verse 18 is doing is reminding Timothy of the foundation, of the preparation that has taken place for the moment that he's in. 
Now we move on to verse 19 because Paul says that, well, actually it's the end of verse 18, because Paul says that by them, referring to the prophecies, right, the things that were pro- proclaimed to Timothy, he says that by them you may wage the good warfare. What is What exactly is he referring to here? The, the good warfare. He's talking about a battle, right? We talk about the warrior's preparation. The warrior is prepared for battle. He is equipped. He is trained ahead of time. He is called to it and given a commission. But then he has to actually go out into the field of battle. And that's what we're talking about here is the field of battle. And there's two things that Paul focuses on in verse 19. These are the field of battle. These are where the battle is fought. These two things. And these are areas Timothy has to keep in mind. These are two vital principles that must be maintained if we are going to have ministry success. And when I say ministry success, I am not talking about building a big church. I'm not talking about gaining a large following. I'm not talking about having a, a you know a podcast with with tens or hundreds of thousands of people, or having a, a you know a YouTube channel or something like that, or having a big ministry in the world. We're talking about success, and the success, he's going to define it differently. We'll show you here in a minute how he defines success. or Rather, what Paul does, and I think rather than defining success, what he's going to do is going to illustrate what failure looks like. And we, I think, can observe that and recognize that success is going to be the opposite of that. So what are the two keys for success for Timothy and I would say also for us? Well, he's already talked about them in verse 5, but notice what they are here in verse 19, faith and a good conscience. Faith and a good conscience. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the New King James in verse 19, the first word there is having faith and a good conscience. And, uh, and it's, that's a perfectly valid translation of the word, having there. Um, but a lot of other translations that I checked use a little bit stronger translation of that participle. They say things like holding faith or keeping faith or hold firmly to faith. And I think the reason they do that, even though having is is a perfectly acceptable translation here, I think the reason they do that is that they're trying to kind of communicate in English that this is not something that's passive or weak. This This idea in verse 19 involves a very strenuous effort not to let go of these two things, faith and a good conscience. You see, it's not, this is important, it is not an accident if someone stays true to the faith and remains faithful. It's not an accident. It doesn't happen by chance. And it doesn't just happen. It takes a determined effort. There's a battle here. The the warrior prepares and then he goes into battle and there's an intentionality. There's a, a challenge here. At the same time, though, and this is important, we we can't think of this merely in terms of our own effort. This is a danger that a lot of times Christians can fall into. We say, listen, we got to be faithful. We got to stay faithful. We got to fight the fight. We got to do, you know, live for God. We got to obey. We have to do all of these things. And we can begin, if we're not careful, to think in purely human terms that this is up to me and you about us determining, us having a strong enough conviction, us uh, uh, just kind of gritting our teeth and holding on and not letting go, as if I'm going to keep myself faithful to the end. 
But that's not the context here. Again, the context, going all the way back to verse 12, Paul says that Christ is the one who enabled him, counting him faithful and putting him in ministry. Right? Christ is the enabler. So we can't, we can't allow ourselves to get off on this area and think that this somehow is up to me. It's my strength, and if I could just do it hard enough, I'll, I'll be faithful. Now, I have to remember, ultimately, Christ enables me. Christ is the grace giver. He's the one who makes me strong. He's the one who equips me and trains me and keeps me. But that doesn't negate my responsibility to be faithful, to be obedient. And so sometimes people, because of the legalistic tendency of saying, well, I got to just keep myself. I got to I got to be strong enough. I got to keep going hard enough. I got to keep myself saved or I got to be faithful enough. And that can sometimes have a legalistic tendency. People react and overreact the wrong the other way. They fall in the ditch on the other side of the road. And they say, well, it's got nothing to do with me. I don't have to worry about my own obedience or my own faithfulness. It's just Christ's going to keep me. He's going to hold me. And I don't really have a role to play here. Well, that's wrong too. And so we need to understand this, not fall in either one of the ditches on either side. And instead, uh, seek to follow biblical principle here. If we are going to confront false teachers if we're going to confront people who have left the faith or are in danger of leaving the faith, that's part of Timothy's ministry. That's part of the ministry of the gospel that all of us as Christians are called to, not just pastors. But if we're going to do that ministry, we must hold firmly to the faith ourselves or else we will just be hypocrites. And if we're going to confront those who have turned aside from having a good conscience, and what Paul means by that when he says that is they have uh, uh, intentionally and knowingly doing things that your conscience is accusing you of. Your conscience tells you it's wrong, but you do it anyways. Okay? That's what these people have done. Paul's saying this is if we're going to confront these people, we cannot do that while we're living in known sin ourselves. In other words, I can't confront someone for violating their conscience while I'm violating my own. Because again, all I am then is hypocrite. Jesus says exactly the same thing in Matthew 7, a passage that is probably misquoted and misused more than any other scripture in the Bible. Judge not that you be not judged. Most people stop there. That's a mistake. Because Jesus says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be measured back to you. A little bit later, he says, first remove the plank in your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We cannot afford to be hypocrites here. D. Edmund Hebert subs, sums up this point really well. And it's a personal challenge to me as your pastor. But it should be a challenge for each one of us. Here's what it says. The Christian leader must personally possess the spiritual qualities he would enforce. And Paul says basically this, if I can paraphrase. Timothy, you'd better make sure you keep the faith and a good conscience. Don't give them up. Don't let them slide. Keep watch over yourself to believe the truth and to do it. And here's the good news, okay? I want to share with you some good news here. For the servant of Christ, 
right? Are, if you're a servant of Christ, and that means if you're a pastor or you're a deacon, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a nursery worker, or if you're just someone who cleans the church and takes out the trash, success in your ministry calling, whatever that calling is, here's what success is. It's to be faithful, to keep faith and a good conscience before God. This doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It means that you're doing your best to walk according to God's will for your life. You're not living in known and unconfessed sin. You're not refusing to deal with sinful habits or areas in your life that you know you struggle. As a result, your conscience is clear. This is the battle that Timothy is engaged in. But it's not just a private battle of the heart. See, we, 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 we a lot of times think about this as a personal issue, but it's really not. It starts there, but it's more than that. Because Timothy has got to watch over himself to make sure that he's living by faith and walking in obedience to God's word. There's nothing flashy about this. This is the thing that I think we struggle with. You know, we're like, we want to go, you know, I don't know, we're like somebody that goes to, a, the, you know, the guru and says, give me, you know, the key to life. Tell me what it is. I want to know the trick so that I can kind of get to the end and just kind of sail through everything. But that's not the way it works. We don't want to do the hard thing, that daily discipline, every day, praying, reading your Bible, fellowshiping with other Christians, witnessing to the lost, loving your neighbor, all of those things. We don't want to do those things every day because it's hard. We want to just jump to the end. We want to find some trick, some shortcut that lets us kind of skip over all of that and just be holy, just be spiritual. That doesn't work like that. And so what do you do? You get up today and you pray and you read your Bible and you fellowship with Christians and you care about them and you show love to them. You witness to the lost. You love your neighbor and you, you, do, you do those things. And you know what you do tomorrow? You get up and you do the exact same thing. And the day after that and the day after that and the day after that until the Lord calls you home. This is the foundation for all public ministry in the church and the world. Can I say that again? Your daily walk with God, your daily practice of spiritual discipline, your daily obedience to the word of God, keeping a clear conscience because you're doing what God has called you to do. That day by day walk is the foundation for all public ministry. How many times, I just, just recently, just yesterday, so I had a conversation with someone about this. How many times do we hear about some well-known preacher who's found out to be an adulterer or an embezzler of funds or, or, or some other scandal? I mean, I, it takes literally, as I'm saying those words, there are names popping into my head of people that you know their names. You, you know who they are. They're famous people. And yet for all of the ministry that they've accomplished and all of the things that they've done, the, the thousands of people that have flocked to hear them speak and the books that have written and, and, and all of the good things that they have done. They've, let, they've ended up at the end of their life or maybe before they've gotten to that point, but it's become known that they were involved in some sin 
and their testimony was ruined and their and their their name their their, their ministry for Christ was was stained where does this kind of thing start always 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 in the same place it comes from being lazy well some of these people are the hardest working people you'd ever meet i'm not talking about that but it comes from being lazy in our spiritual life from neglecting our walk with christ neglecting our commitment to the truth in our own private lives it starts in the heart it starts with those daily disciplines those things that get boring because we keep doing them over and over again. Reading our Bible. I told the kids that. What do we do? We, we, we finish reading the Bible at December 31st. So what do we do January 1st? We start over. Why do we do that? Because that's how the Christian life is lived. Right? You, you, you read to the Bible. You, you read and study to the end of the Bible. And what do you do? You start over again because you're never done. You love your neighbor today. And what do you do tomorrow? You love him again. You, you tell your, your lost family member about Christ and, and they, 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 don't, they don't hear him. So what do you do tomorrow? You tell them again. Why? Because we just keep doing these simple things that God has called us to do. We remember the foundational elements. Paul says that says faith and a good conscience. We've got to believe the truth and we've got to live it. That's it. Every day it's that commitment. And if we lose sight of that, if we start to neglect it, if we get lazy about our spiritual walk, if we get lazy about obeying the truth, if we get lazy about our conscience, Paul says, you know what? That's where all of that spiritual scandal, all of that starts. And I, I don't know these people, you know, the, the guy, you think about these famous preachers, but if you look at their life, if we could know everything that is known about that, that could be known about them somewhere along the way, they began to neglect those simple daily disciplines of spirituality. They began to neglect their time with, with the Lord in prayer and his word. They began to neglect the real, genuine, sacrificial love uh, that, that God calls us to show for other people. They began to, 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 to neglect some area of that personal spiritual discipline. And it didn't take long before... It, it became a major, major issue in their life, and their public ministry was ruined. Notice how the end of verse 19, though, Paul talks about some of those same people. He says, Timothy, you're supposed to have, you're supposed to hold firmly this faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. And then he actually mentions by name a couple of these people. Most commentators look at these people in verses 19 and 20, and they connect them back to the people in verses 3 and 4 and verse 6, the ones that Paul warned about there. I actually think that there's a distinction here. I think that Paul makes a distinction between them, although I'm, I wouldn't die on this hill, but um, to me it seems like there's a difference. Those people they talked about earlier in verses 3 through 7, the ones that, that, that wanted to be teachers of the law, Paul says that they had paid attention to fables and endless genealogies. He said they have strayed away from the foundational gospel truths. In other words, in their case, it was not an intentional rejection or abandonment of truth. They were people who were being caught up in things they didn't understand. And as a result, they were at risk of being carried away. But the people, I think, in verses 19 and 20 are different. They, they demonstrate what, what one writer calls a form of spiritual bankruptcy. 
So that whatever faith they may have at once possessed has vanished. These people have not just wandered off and gotten distracted, maybe, maybe gotten off into kind of a side issue or something not important, or maybe, maybe they've, they've gotten kind of caught up in some little thing here or there. These are people, he says, who have knowingly, Paul says, they have rejected faith and a good conscience. That word reject there in verse 19 means to shove away from yourself. It's a, it's a violent push. These people have looked at that, that, what he said to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to maintain a good conscience. These people looked at that and said, no, I don't want that. They want nothing to do with it. They have willingly set aside a good conscience. They have chosen to violate their internal warning mechanism that God has given them. This is a serious problem. Now we're dealing with the third point, what I call the cost of failure. Paul says that some professing Christians, that's what these were, professing Christians, but they have abandoned the faith. Again, not just gotten lost, not just kind of gotten caught up in something that was, that, you know, got out of control. These are people who've said, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. These are people who have turned their backs on the truth, who have turned their backs on obedience. They have refused to hear their conscience, and they are running headfirst into things that they know are sin. And Paul says their failure is not private. It's very public. That's what he means when he says they have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith. Notice, he doesn't say concerning their faith they have suffered shipwreck. He says concerning the faith. These so-called Christians had made a disaster of the faith that they claimed to know and follow. So they had pr professed to be Christians, but now through the neglect of their conscience, they have made a shipwreck. They have utterly destroyed whatever testimony they had for Christ. They have made a public spectacle of abandoning obedience to the faith. And Paul calls two of them out by name. This is something that most people today are uncomfortable with. Paul says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Um, it's interesting. Hymenaeus is an unusual name here. Uh, not one that we're that, that, that we come across very very much. In fact, it's only used one other time in the Bible, and that's in Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul refers probably to the same person, Hymenaeus, and talks about his false teaching. He calls it a cancer that is spreading in the church. Now, Alexander is a little bit harder to pinpoint because there's a, a fairly common name, and uh, there's at least five or six references to Alexander. Someone named Alexander in the Bible, but probably they don't all refer to the same person. Um, so it's hard to say. There's at least, I would say, at least three different Alexanders, maybe as many as five that are mentioned in Scripture. Um, there is another Alexander that is mentioned in 2 Timothy. Paul talks about Alexander the coppersmith there, and that may be the same guy, but it also might be different. It's hard to say. We don't know a lot about these two men other than what Paul says is they were ruining the testimony of Christ and of the church in Ephesus. They, they had made the, 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 the faith a shipwreck. And so as a result of that, Paul had cast them out of the assembly, of the congregation there. He says here that they were delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now that's a pretty cryptic saying there, and people have speculated about what does that mean, delivering them to Satan. Um, and Paul doesn't really go into a lot of detail. I think 
Probably because Paul expects Timothy to know what he means. When he says, deliver to Satan, he figures Timothy knows what he's talking about. And uh, there's another passage we compare it to. Um, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, and that was written probably at least a decade before this. But uh, Paul, wrote, Paul wrote there, um, there was a, a situation in the church at Corinth of a, a man who, had, uh, who was having an immoral relationship with his own stepmother. And uh, Paul calls the church out because they had not done anything about it. But here's what Paul told the church to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, deliver such a one to Satan. You see the same language there. For the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so um, this delivering to Satan appears to be another way of saying what Jesus said. Matthew 18, Jesus said, for someone who won't hear the rebuke of the church, Jesus said, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, when someone rejects the faith and turns against their own conscience, they are to be put out of the congregation. This is for the good of the church and also for the testimony in the church's testimony in the community. Right? The, the church cannot tolerate people who call themselves Christians, who profess to be uh, members of the body of Christ, who nevertheless neglect and even uh, reject a good conscience, who refuse to do what they know is right. Again, this is really not popular today. Most churches, I think, I, I don't, I, maybe I shouldn't say that because I don't know the numbers, but I would venture to say that most churches today, in America at least, really do not practice any significant form of church discipline. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. You got a person in the church who uh, abandons the truth, who rejects the truth, who, who violates their own conscience, doing things they know they ought not to do. And as a result, they are making a shipwreck. They are, 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 are putting, a, you know, it's like watching a, a you know, you, you always have the saying, you, you, you can't turn away from a train wreck. Right? You see it happening. You got to watch it, Right. Well, that's the idea. Paul says they're making a public spectacle of this. They cannot be. Well, that's the idea. Paul says they're making a public spectacle of this. They cannot be allowed to continue to do that without repercussion. The church must remove them, must deliver them to Satan. It's for the good of the church. But it's also good for others in the church who may be dabbling in false teaching or may be tempted in some area of sin. That's what I think the distinction is here. So Paul, back in verses 6 and 7, talks about those law teachers. I think Hymenaeus and Alexander are two that Paul is pointing to as a way of saying, listen, you guys, if you could see where the trajectory is you're heading, if you could see where this uh, fascination with the law and fascination with genealogies and all these things. If you could see where that is leading you, it's leading you in the same trajectory as these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made themselves a spiritual shipwreck. And so in a sense, the practice of church discipline is a way of, of warning those Christians who are either straying or tempted to stray, warning them about where that leads. But it also can serve and be good for those Christians who, like Timothy, are, are, are wanting to be faithful, wanting to minister. Right? We can be reminded, too, of what happens if we neglect 
our spiritual discipline. What happens to us when we, this is what Paul says in Galatians 6, right? When he says that we are to restore a, a brother who falls into sin, but he says to keep watch over yourselves, lest you also be tempted. That when we see a brother or sister in Christ who, who gets involved in sin, who violates their conscience, who strays from the truth, it can serve as a reminder to us to maybe do some self-examination. Maybe step back and say, boy, are there areas in my life where I'm neglecting? So that I don't fall into the sin as well, even as I'm trying to restore them, even as I'm trying to help them to come back in repentance and faith. And so there is a sense in which there's a lot of benefit here. Benefit as a warning to those who might be straying. Benefit as a, an opportunity for self-examination for those who are, 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 are trying to be faithful, wanting to be faithful. And finally, there's a, and this is the point that Paul actually makes here in verse 20. It's for the good of those who are cast out of the church. Now, this is the point that really, really trips people up today. Because to them, the idea of church discipline, of removing someone from the church because of sin, is, is unloving. It's, it's harsh. It's critical. It, how could it be good? Paul says it's good for them. That's his goal. That's his intention. Notice what he says. He says, deliver them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's, there's an idea here, I think when he talks about giving them over to Satan, the, the idea is that if you're in the church, if you're in the congregation of God's people, you are in Christ's realm. Right? We talk about this in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. And ambassadors live and work in embassies. And embassies are property of the nation for, of, for whom they represent. So if we are ambassadors for Christ, this is his embassy, the church. And I don't mean the building. I mean the, the body of Christ. And as long as we are inside the embassy, we are safe. We are protected. We are guarded by the power of Christ because this is his realm. It's an outpost, if you will, of his coming kingdom. But what happens if we take someone who professes to be a Christian who's no longer living for Christ, who's abandoned their faith or is turned against their conscience, and we remove them from the church. We, we put them out. Now they're no, longer in, they're no longer in the embassy, if you will. Now they've been put outside. Now they are in what, what we might call Satan's realm. And Bill Mount says this, there Satan will deal with them as recaptured deserters. Sinners experiencing the natural consequence of their sin. When we remove a, a, a sinning a brother, or sister, a professing brother or sister in Christ, who's violated their conscience, who's done something they know is wrong, and they're refusing to deal with it, when we remove them from the church, we are sending them out to be exposed to the full natural consequences of their sin without the mitigation of God's people around them to help. put it another way, I think it was Homer Kent who said this, when we put someone into Satan's realm, it would cause the offenders to face the issues. So that if they were truly saved, the buffeting of Satan would cause them to see their error and forsake their sin. Right? Someone who is truly saved, who is put out of the church in discipline because they have violated their conscience and they've abandoned the faith, that person, 
when they experience the consequences of their sin, and when they experience the buffeting of Satan, as a true child of God, that would cause them to turn back and say, I want the protection of the church. I want to be a part of the body again. And they will reject their sin, forsake their sin, and return to Christ. Paul says that's the goal here. We remove them from the body. We deliver them to Satan so they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a good end for them here. That's Paul's hope. That's his desire. We, when churches today do practice discipline, I think we tend to think of it more in terms of just releasing someone from their commitment to the church, letting them go. Um, in a sense, kind of going back to a life of ease and tranquility in the world. But that is just not how the New Testament presents it. To put someone out of the church is to expose them to the hatred of the evil one. To experience fully the consequences of their sinful choice without our help, without our comfort, without our support. By the way, as a totally separate issue here, but, but so important. If removing someone in church discipline means they have to experience the consequence of their sin without our help, our support, and our comfort, then what, by implication, I think that says is that if a person is in the church and sins and they're willing to be corrected, we should be providing them as much comfort and help and support and hope as we can. Because this is the place for that. The sinning believer who is a member of the church who's confronted and, and, and admits, yes, I've sinned and I need help. We as a body should be the first to come around them, to put our arms around them, to embrace them and say, brother, I know what the experience is. I too struggle with sin and I want to help you. I want to be your resource. I will do everything I can. Unfortunately, too often, we in churches get on our high horse. We get prideful and arrogant. We look at limits or beyond the pale that, that we, just, we just can't even talk about. It shouldn't be that way. This ought to be the place where a sinner can find help and comfort and support as they are coming to Christ, as they are repenting and turning the self-willed one who refuses to repent, they must be put out. And then we must withhold help and comfort from them so that they can experience fully the consequence of their sin in the hopes that it will turn them back to Christ if there is true faith there. That's what church discipline is all about. We don't do this out of anger. We don't do this out of revenge. We do this with a sincere love and a desire that they would turn back to Christ. They would repent of their sin and they'd be restored once more to the fellowship of the saints and under the protective care of the church. That's what Paul has in mind here. Sadly, these men serve as a reminder of what not to do and be in our Christian faith. And there's really not much evidence. In fact, again, it may be evidence... The rest of the evidence of 2 Timothy would suggest that it doesn't work here in this instance. But that's the goal. We need to pay attention, though, to these men by means of warning. We need to keep the faith. 
We need to guard it. We need to hold firmly to it. We need to stay faithful to the truth. We need to confess it. We need to obey it. We must fight the good fight and rely on the divine enablement that we have received through Christ. This is how we win the spiritual battle. It's not flashy. It's not, uh, it's not something that draws attention. It's not something that gets us um, praise and accolades. The way that we win and fight in this spiritual battle is by being faithful. We need to strive to be faithful, not flashy. To persevere rather than put on a show. To endure to the end without suffering shipwreck by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, I see in my own heart, in my own life, the danger so great that I could get up here and I could preach these things. I could talk about the importance of daily spiritual discipline. I could talk about the importance of being faithful, of staying true, of, 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 of uh, responding rightly to our conscience. I could talk about those things. And then I could go and do otherwise. And I realize if I'm not careful, I could suffer spiritual shipwreck just like these men in Ephesus. Father, help me. By your grace, give me strength and courage and faithfulness to simply get up today and tomorrow and the next day and keep on keeping on with those daily uh, spiritual disciplines, to keep on uh, 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 believing the faith and receiving the faith, the truth of Scripture, to keep on uh, um holding a good conscience, doing what I know is your will, being rightly to the truth and obeying. Father, help me. I need your grace. We all need your grace to do that. Father, I pray that if there's someone listening to me this morning who maybe we talk about all this stuff, they, they've never even trusted in Christ. They've never even been born again. They've never been a Christian. I pray that today they would realize it's not a matter of falling away because they're already condemned. I pray they would realize that they are in need of your grace to save them. That they would cry out to you today for forgiveness and mercy and pardon. And Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself in us today. Help us as a church to be faithful to be steadfast, to simply continue on, keeping on for the truth and for Christ, whatever happens, whatever the circumstances are, whatever's going on in the world and in our life, that we would simply keep going for you and trusting you each day until you call us home or until Christ returns to establish the kingdom here on earth and all we look for that day. Help us to be faithful until then. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.